Well, listen, we're excited as we continue on a series we call Common Ground. As we began last week from John 4, Jesus interacting with the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, very cross-cultural ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ, reaching a person that most in the Jewish population would never think of reaching out to. Jesus bridged that gap and found common ground and brought her to the point of a relationship where she then knew Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that's our desire as we go through a series of topics and issues throughout these next two months that we find common ground so that we can be the living water of Christ to invite them in. We've invited David Kinman to come and share with us because he's written an outstanding book called Good Faith that helps us to engage in those topics in a very attractive way. And uh, he's the president of the Barna Group that goes around, I think over, I think I read on your website, a million interviews that you've done in interacting with folks. And I love some of his previous books, Unchristian, You Lost Me, as it helps to stimulate our thoughts as to how we can reach the millennials and those of the generations behind us. So we're thankful for so much good information, and we're thankful that he can come and share with us this morning, all the way from Ventura. So thank you for coming on down. And so let's welcome David Kinneman as he comes on up here this morning. Well, good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I got the privilege of meeting Pastor Dave uh, two, two years ago this month, actually, because I was interviewed for the Biola board, and so we served together on the Biola board. Uh, and I just have to tell you, getting to know him over the last couple of years, it's wonderful to see his heart for the Bible, for this next generation, for Southern California, and especially for you, this church. Uh, could we uh, thank God for, jo- for Joy and Pastor Day this morning? I'm the son of a pastor, and I just know how much it means for us to acknowledge our leaders and to thank them for the work and for their investment in us. Well, this morning we want to talk about good faith, about how we can be people of good faith. And I would like to use Matthew 5 as our, as our verse for the morning. This is the famous salt and light passage, Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is it if salt has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your infallible, authoritative, beautiful words to us, Lord. The scripture that we can guide our lives by. And so as we lean in this morning to think about finding common ground in a world that is increasingly complex and contentious and difficult, Lord, we ask that you would help us know how to be salt and light. We ask that that I'd be faithful in the way that I would preach and teach this morning to encourage and edify and challenge your people. We ask you, Lord, to be with us. To not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, based on the research that we do, so I run a company that does a bunch of social research. We've interviewed, as Pastor Dave said, more than a million people over the last 20 years. 
Uh, we're a social research company. We do polling. We try to understand what's happening in our cu- culture in order that the Christian community can be more effective in its mission. And so I want to describe for you what it means to be salt and light in the context of our current culture. And I actually believe, based on all this research, it's becoming more difficult for us as Christians to be salt and light. There are certain ways in which our culture is putting new pressure on us. And and I'm here to say we want to try to awaken you. We want to help you realize what those pressures are. Um, And we, we also want to say to you that we think there's an opportunity for us to be both joyful and hopeful, even in the midst of really challenging circumstances. And so that's what I want to try to help you understand, that we, to be salt and light, Jesus is asking us to be people of impact, to be people of influence. And, and of course, you know, we, many of us have heard that teaching before. We've heard about this, this idea, Jesus uses this metaphor of salt, that salt was a preservative in the meats. And, you know, he's using this idea that if, if salt loses its flavor, it's, it's making no impact in the world. And I want to help you understand how it is that the church's impact is being d- diminished uh, to be salt and, and, and light. To be light means that we're going to try to shine a, a light in the darkness. And, and Jesus says, if, if you have a light, you don't put it under a bushel. You don't put it under a basket. You don't, you don't diminish that light. You try to shine it into the darkest places. And in this whole series of Common Ground, we want to tr- talk about how do you bring the light into the darkest places, into these really difficult conversations that many of us as Christians are having to, ha- having to have. And so what I want to talk about specifically in terms of the new trends, these, these new issues that we're seeing in our research is, is the notion of being irrelevant and extreme. And so I've got a couple different slides I'll show you. I'm a researcher, so we're gonna, we've got about a thousand different slides that I'm going to sh- share with you this morning. Uh, I, sort of like statistics are my love language, right? Some of you got to glaze over, but you know, I'm a geek for Christ's sake, and I'm going to try to share with you some of the things we're learning. And so this idea of irrelevant is this long, slow burn that, that essentially religion, that Christianity doesn't matter much in our lives. We know, for example, that nearly six out of 10 Christian young people, when they graduate from high school, will walk away either from the church or from their faith, largely because of the irrelevance of faith. Irrelevance is this, this sense that, that Christianity doesn't really matter, that religion is something to be ignored. Now, extreme is something else. And, and this is a brand new trend that is, is really, you know, it's interesting we're here on nine, the anniversary of 9-11. In some ways it began, this public perception that religion is essentially extreme sort of began to hit our radar on 9-11 when we realized that religion could do such great evil in the world. Here in America we had lived sort of a, you know, sort of a sheltered existence from what m- much of the Christian community is experiencing around the world. And I'm here to suggest to you that what's happening is this new rise, this perception that the church, that Christianity, that religion is actually part of the problem. 42% of Americans, 42% believe that religion, that people of faith are actually part of the problem. And so irrelevance is that you could ignore faith. It doesn't really matter because it's what they do on Sundays. Extremism is... We need to constrain. We need to, we need to find ways of limiting the impact of religion. At Biola, and maybe some of you heard about this, there was a piece of legislation here in California called SB 1146, which was to take away Cal grants from religious institutions that had any kind of discriminatory language. That's, that's an expression of extremism because if, if the church is simply irrelevant, it doesn't really matter what they do on their campuses or in their churches or in their businesses, but extremism means no, we, we don't want you to have that kind of impact in our culture. You're actually someone who's doing something wrong in the world. 
That, that's, that's, this new, that's this new cultural environment that we're living in. Here's an example. My, my daughter is a senior. I have three kids, a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 12-year-old. My two oldest go to uh, public school. And um, we're in Ventura, and, and there are plenty of articles that are written on the school newspaper that are affirming of gay and lesbian lifestyles. And yet, if my daughter were to write a, a position paper or a, an editorial piece that would express an orthodox point of view, do you think that would be welcome on her public school news, news site, right? So we have a, a sort of tolerance in our world, kind of fake tolerance, but we're trying to help understand what do we do about that? We can complain about it, but what do we do? How do we be salt and light? How are we people of impact? When very traditional ideas about faith are actually viewed as extremist. It's crazy, but we actually go through about 20 different things in the book of things that are historically viewed by Christians that are now viewed as extremists by, by many, if not most, Americans. Things like if you were to try to convert someone to, to Christianity, 60% believe that that's extremist. If you were to believe that the orthodox point of view that, that same-sex relationships are, are morally not consistent with Christian discipleship, 52% believe that's extremist. If you were to quit a good-paying job and become a missionary, 42% say that's extremist. If you were to pray for a stranger, more than half believe that's extremist. So here's the challenge. We're living in a culture that is changing its mind about Christianity. It's viewing the, the, the ways that we might typically express our faith as being extremist. And of course, that's all on this larger context in which people view the faith as irrelevant. Now, let me give you just a little bit of hands and feet, just a little bit of like idea about what this looks like. So my mother-in-law is a lifelong Christian. She doesn't go to church very often, um, but, but she's, she would certainly could describe herself as a Christian. And, and really, I'm going to talk about this as an example of how faith has largely become irrelevant in our culture. And in particular, this is just sort of the story illustrates it. So she's a lifelong Christian. And a few years ago, she was at our house. We're watching the Discovery Channel, and it's a program about about pumas and lions and tigers, big cats, okay? So during commercial break, my mother-in-law says, you know, David, in my next life, I would like to come back as a tiger. All my training uh, from Biola, <laughs> it didn't prepare me for that conversation. And, uh, and I thought to myself, should I have a theological discussion or, you know, just what should I say? And honestly, this is a true confession. The best that came to mind was, you know, Janice, they are beautiful animals. That's the best I could do. Don't judge me, guys. That's the best I could do. So the next morning, I told my wife, Jill, she had already gone to bed. We had young kids at the time. Uh, but I told my wife, honey, your mom is a tiger mom. She, she wants to be a tiger in her next life. And I said, and, and she said, I don't know what, you, what do you mean? She's like, no, she believes in reincarnation apparently and she wants to be a tiger. So for her birthday later that year, my wife got her a greeting card uh, that, that showed a tiger that was waiting in a, like a jungle pool. It was be a beautiful picture. On the inside, the, the card was actually blank. And so I said, you know, honey, what should I write? And I've got to write an inscription. You know, like, should I say, happy birthday, Janice? You're almost there. I, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit of a troublemaker, so, you know, what do I, what do, I do with that? So, I, you know, I, I thought long and hard. I went, went through a lot of different options. You know, you're earning your stripes every day. Um, 
go get him, tiger. Uh, in the end, I said, I hope your wild, happy birthday, I hope your wildest dreams come true. You know, I thought that was the safest way of putting it. All right, so listen, even for a lifelong Christian, uh, much of faith is irrelevant, and we can actually talk, and this is some of the, the, the major themes of our work over the last couple of decades. I, my, it's a, just a funny story. It's a true story. In fact, she was just visiting us uh, for the Olympics. She, was, she, was at, she lives in Seattle, uh, and, uh, and she, she told my kids, she's like, you know, in my next life, I want to be a tiger. And all my kids who've heard me tell this story were like, oh my gosh, she still wants to be a tiger. Um, <clears throat> so this is just a story of the irrelevance of faith, how so often... Uh, you know, Jesus uses different sort of stories. The seed would, would, would fall on different types of hearts. And, and you know, I love my mother-in-law. It's just, it's just a story. But it illustrates that, that faith, that Christianity is in large part viewed as irrelevant in our world. And, and so that's part of the context. That's what's happening, that people are sort of ignoring or they are saying now that Christianity is extremist. And so on top of that, the other thing that I want to share with you this morning is the thing that we're learning about this new moral code, this sort of self-centered moral code that's emerging in our culture. And what I want to share with you is some of the different statistics that that we've seen related to this. So this is some of the polling that we've done. And we find that 91% of Americans believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Um, Guys in the back, if it's possible to put the slides on my monitor up here, that would be helpful so I don't have to turn around. That'd be great. Um, so 91% of Americans believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. I mean, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself? Have you ever really tried that? I mean, Scripture teaches that we're, that we're wicked, that we're both created in the image of God, but that we're fundamentally flawed. And so how is it that we would hope to find, you know, the best way forward when we're looking inside ourselves? That's just, that's just a crazy idea. And nine out of 10 Americans believe that. Do you know that 76% of practicing Christians believe this as well? We are actually embracing much of this new moral code in our churches. Here's another example. 89% say that people should not criticize someone else's life choices. See, part of what's happening in our world, and I've talked to a lot of pastors who've been in ministry for 20, 30, 40 years and say, wow, that, that feels like a very different reality, that we can't criticize someone else's life choice. See, typically, we would say that in a, in a church and in our culture, pastors were viewed as having some sort of idea about life and how to live it based on Scripture. But we're seeing now that everyone is their own judge and jury. Isn't it interesting? This is, uh, this is in, in the end of Judges, the very last chapter, the very last verse. So we're in, we're in uh, Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Here's another example of this. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of Americans believe that. That's not even logically possible. We just did a big study for Josh McDowell looking at pornography in America. And do you realize that today's teenagers... They now view it as morally worse to not recycle than to view pornography. And, and, and it's interesting that when we ask teenagers, when you have a conversation with one of your peers about pornography, is it essentially morally neutral or morally accepting? Or like, like would people say it's bad to look at pornography? And nine out of ten millennials say that, that viewing pornography is essentially like it's no big deal or it's a good thing. Only one in 10 conversations with teenagers say that pornography is actually a bad thing. It's like it doesn't matter because it's a private deal. 
except that's just a very wrong way of thinking about pornography. It affects people's views of sexuality. It changes marriages. It changes a generation's attitudes. People have to work in that industry. Like, believe whatever you want, just don't affect society is, is not possible, and it's certainly not a biblical idea. A majority of practicing Christians believe this. Finally, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. So part of what we try to describe in this project is all of the ways in which we are embracing this new moral code and we're shifting from a a context in which we find our our center through scripture or at least through external sources of authority. In the past, people would look to media and government officials and, uh, you you know, academics and pastors and business officials, like how should we live our lives? And now what's happening is people don't care. Everyone sort of does what's right in their own eyes. And that's this new moral context. And part of the reason it's so hard for us to be people of impact, to find common ground, is because we in the church so often don't look that different. And so one of the things that we can do is to realize that God is shaping our hearts and minds. He wants us to look and think and act differently, to not be, tr- to be conformed to the patterns of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12, 2 says. And so we can think differently and act differently. Now, one of the things that's been interesting to me, so I'm a researcher, I'm, I'm a person who, we do lots of different interviews and different s- sort of social research studies, but I'm also just an observer of culture, and it's interesting to me that if we were to look at our movies and our music and our magazines and our pop culture, so much of our pop culture is now sort of reinforcing this new moral code. And many of our kids, many of our grandkids are in this new context. I was, I was interested, just a couple of weeks ago, I was um, preaching at a church in Visalia, actually, and my daughter, Annika, who's 15 years old, uh, we were looking through a magazine, a furniture magazine, and I was noticing in the magazine all these different ways that this sort of like new moral code finds expression in the art and the pillows and the things that, that this is, you know, it's like, it's harmless enough. But I want to just show you some of these different things. So this is one. Uh, this is you only live once. Like that's a great poster to, th- to put up on your kid's uh, wall, right? You only live once. Um, people will say YOLO, right? That's a, the abbreviation of the only, you only live once. Now listen, it's, it's a harmless enough statement, except that the philosophy of it is like, it doesn't really matter what you do. Here's another example. This is a throw pillow. Like, we don't want much. We just, I want it all. Right? Like, the, the, the underlying philosophy is, yeah, I, like, like, I want it all. And how about this one? This is my favorite. All good things are wild and free. Now, I had some mitten chip ice cream last week that was neither wild nor free, but it was really good. Right? <laughs> And so this notion of all good things are wild and free. It's like this, you know, the soul should be unfettered. You should live whatever kind of life you want. You shouldn't criticize someone else's life choices. You can sort of see. I'm just asking you to notice. I'm not trying to judge your choices about throw pillows if you have these things. But I'm asking you to notice that we, we live in a culture that is reinforcing the self at the center, that you are the, the judge and jury, that you're, you're just almost always right about what you want that if you look deep within yourself, you'll really figure it out. And that's incredibly contrary to what it means to be a Christian in today's world. To find common ground, to be salt and light, means we have to look distinct from the world. So, you know, this is just some of the things that I wanted to share with you about about the difficulty 
that we live in, the sort of the difficult conversations that we're going to have. And this brings me to sort of where, where the rubber meets the road. This whole project actually was designed because we realized, my friend Gabe Lyons and I were working on a research project that was not designed to go public. It was just a project that we were working on. So Gabe Lyons and I are good friends. We've been friends for 15 years, and we were working on a study, and we began to see in this research, the Lord graciously began to help us understand the challenges that our own kids, we have three teenage kids, each of us, that, that the difficult conversations they were going to have on their campuses and the difficult conversations we're going to have in our workplaces and the challenging ways that we're going to have to find common ground in a political season. I mean, anybody realize there's an election coming up in November? <laughs> to find common ground on these really challenging topics, race, um, Islam, the rise of secularism, being in a religiously plural co- context, uh, the expressions of, of faith and faithfulness. I mean, this is all really difficult stuff. Sexuality, the LGBT community, it, it, it's, it's incredibly challenging. And so this is part of what I want to just spend a few minutes talking about um, in terms of what do we do with this? How do we move forward? If it's more difficult for us to be salt and light, and I believe that's true, I want to remind you that I actually think for us as a community of of Jesus followers, in some ways it's actually easier for us as the darkness is getting even darker for us to show something that's really different, for us to to have a kind word, to to exemplify the the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. When we feel like we're being persecuted and marginalized, that God asks us to find a new way a more Jesus-centered way. So I love this section in, um, in Colossians. I think Paul gives us such practical advice about this idea of conversations. Conversations are so important to the Christian community because they represent how Jesus wants us to go forward. If you, if you, if you listened when we talked about uh, the salt and light passage, Jesus at the very end, he says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. How do we do that? How, Jesus gives us this high and lofty goal. How do we actually make this work out? So here's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Paul advises that we should live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. He says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Uh, there's a sort of a two-sided uh, evaluation that we could have of our conversations. The, the gracious part is the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. Let your conversation be gracious. Boy, it is so hard to be gracious on social media, isn't it? Uh, we find that 62% of Americans say that social media does not make us more social. And effective, this idea of attractive, this idea of having the right response is the other part of it. So that we can be so gracious and loving and, and, and leading with our love, but if we don't actually have a right response, if we don't actually have a biblical worldview, if we actually say, yeah, YOLO, you know, you only live once, that's probably pretty much true. Do you know one of the most quoted verses of, of the Bible in America today is God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's something Ben Franklin said. But a majority of Americans believe that's in the Bible because it sounds pretty darn awesome. 
And, and so if we don't have the right response, if we don't actually think and act and live biblically, we can't actually be salt and light. So to be salt and light, there is this incredible tension, this paradox, this balancing act that we're always in of loving, of leading with our love, of being gracious and being attractive and having the right response. Now, I want to, we have in the book project, I think like 15 or 16 different principles, ways that the Christian community can be people of good faith in this very difficult uh, and challenging environment. But I want to share with you one of the principles that we talk about, this idea that good faith Christians allow their marriages, their families, and hospitality to benefit others. Now, I want to share another story. It's a tough one for me to tell, but it's about my brother-in-law. And um, about 15 years ago, he came and visited. He had been married twice, and Brian came and visited my wife and I, and, um, and he came out as gay at that time. And so, you, you know, that was a difficult thing for my wife and for me. Um, and, you know, we had him over to the house, you know, once a year or whatever that, that he was, he didn't live in our, in our uh, community, but, but when he was in town, of course, we would see him. But I have to be honest that even though I, I mean, I write books, I've done research, I've, I, I think this is a critically important issue, the issue of how the, the church goes forward on, on same-sex relationships. I know you're going to be covering that in the Common Ground series coming up. But for me, just being an author and, you know, an expert, so-called expert on this topic, as I worked on this new book project, Good Faith, the Lord began to show me that if we were to apply this principle of hospitality towards my relationship with my brother-in-law, and fast forward to just a few years ago, he passed away from HIV-AIDS. And I, I think about the fact he wasn't a believer, although he was sort of Christian, and his, you know, in his, just like others, he was sort of like kind of Christian, but but not really very Christ-following. And I just wonder if I had offered to him something like this, friends. If I had said, Brian, you know, you've got a lot of discussions, we've got a lot of discussions to have about this, but I want you to know that if you wanted to live with our family and you wanted to have intimacy and family and friendship in the context of our family, we'd have to have some conversations about what that does and doesn't do and how that works. But if you want to wake up on Saturday mornings and have pancakes with us, if you want to play board games with us, if you want to watch movies on Friday nights, if you want to be a part of our family, we would love, you to, we would love for you to be part of our family. See, I never saw him as more than just a person who, like, fine, if he would ever accept Christ, that'd be great. And then, and then we'll in, involve him in our family, right? But it was like conditional in some way. And I'm just here to, to say to you that I think there was something about, like, the difficult conversation that I didn't have with my brother-in-law, Brian, that I never, I never was willing to be salt and light. See, we can say that difficult conversations and being salt and light is just that we're, like, warriors for truth. But if we're not willing to be personally challenged and changed, we're not actually being salt and light. If you go into a difficult conversation trying to win the point, trying to make sure that they understand that, that, you know, that you're their salvation, you've missed the opportunity to really point them to who is it that is their salvation. So this is just an example of one way for me that I realized that, that, that the Lord in his graciousness has I've asked for forgiveness for the conversations that I didn't have with Brian, and I've just realized that God in his mercy wants to use us as agents of love and hospitality in our, in our world. 
Well, uh, about five months ago, my family had a chance to go to the Grand Canyon, and we, we went all the way to the bottom. We hiked down and stayed at the bottom at a place called Phantom Ranch. And the, the day before, we realized that my oldest daughter had forgotten her jacket. Great planning. Um, and so, anyway, I have two teenage daughters, so you can have to just pray for me, right? That's just um, 17 and 15. They're awesome, and they're two teenage girls. That's, that's just, just to underscore that point. Um, <clears throat> And so uh, she had forgotten her jacket, so we're in the store at the lodge, Grand Canyon Lodge, getting her, uh, getting her a jacket, and she had actually walked away to go get some lunch, I think. But my boy and I, my 12-year-old, we were standing in, 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 uh, in, in sort of the, the jacket area, and, uh, and so this the young woman was limping over to help us. She had actually gone to find the right size of the jacket, and, uh, and I said, you know, I'm noticing that you're limping. Can you, what's up? And she said, oh, yeah, I went on a long hike yesterday. I shouldn't have done it, and I'm in a lot of pain today. And I just realized that, you know, like I had to come in, otherwise I feel like I'm going to lose my job. And so she was just sharing a little bit about it. And I was thinking about <clears throat> this notion of extremism. I told you earlier that 55% of Americans believe it's extremist for you to pray for a stranger. And I was thinking to myself, like, it's kind of extreme, but would you mind, I said to her, if I prayed for you? I believe God, you know, wants to heal us. My boy, who's 12, looked at me like, like, what in the heck? Like, you know, he's like, you know, later on, he's like, we really believe this, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. And so she said, yeah, that, that was taken aback, but that'd be fine. I, I would appreciate you praying. And so right there, we just prayed that God would touch her and heal her. And um, I don't, you know, she didn't have any kind of miraculous healing in that moment. But it was for me uh, an opportunity to be faithful, to be salt and light. Even when a culture says that we're extremists and irrelevant, this notion of paying attention, uh, of, of seeing people for who they are. I know Pastor Dave talked about the Samaritan woman last week, this notion of seeing people for who they are, not in their categories, like my gay brother-in-law, right, or just the sales clerk, but seeing people for people and trying to, to find ways of being salt and light in a world that thinks all of this is just really crazy. And part of the reason we actually worked on this project is we want to give you permission to be irrelevant and extreme, not for the, the reasons to be a jerk, right, but, but to be irrelevant, to be extreme, that to be devout, to be committed to this way of Jesus, actually, like, we really believe this stuff. And I want to finish with this verse. <clears throat> Paul writes, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of good works, so that no one may boast. And I just want to pause there, and, and we're going to tie a couple things together. Remember, Jesus says that we're to be salt and light, and he ends his command he says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself is asking the world to judge the quality and impact of his people? Like, I understand there's also truth in Scripture that says we're to be misunderstood and persecuted because of our faith. But in this section, Jesus is saying, let the world judge, the, 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 praise your Father in heaven. And, and I want you to notice here in Ephesians that Paul is actually saying that these good, these good works, 
They, we don't get to boast about these things. We're never saved by our good works. It's very important that we, we, we say this to ourselves because we get this wrong in, in, our, in our thinking sometimes. We actually see this in our research. Many Christians believe that you're saved through, through, through God's grace or you're saved through good works. It's sort of like a multiple choice test, like whichever you're better at. Um, and, and so that's not true. That's, a, that's not a biblical way of understanding this. And this verse, this, the Ephesians 2.10, gives us, 8, 8 through 10, gives us a really clear understanding of that. We're not, we can't boast in our good works, but we have a responsibility of doing good works. We, we have a responsibility of finding common ground. We have a responsibility to be people of impact. And then it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Other translations say we're a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus intended for my son and I to be in that store that Tuesday afternoon. Jesus intended for certain things to happen, for ways that you will interact in this election season as you try to disciple and, and, and help your kids and grandkids and, and ourselves think about the very complicated topics that we've been, we've been talking about today and in this series, the Common Ground series. Like Jesus intends for us to be a masterpiece of good works that he can say, look at the things that these people are doing. It's not perfect. They're not perfect. But by God's grace, I've given them the courage to be people of impact in a changing world. And so with that, let's pray. Lord, would you help us to be the kinds of Christians, the, the people of salt and light. Lord, would you help us to, to, to think about this this week, to be people of impact. Lord, how can we be gracious and attractive, having the right answer but having the right hearts, Lord? Would you help us to be people of salt and light, people of impact, to be the masterpiece that you have created us to be? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Pastor Dave? Thank you, David. Absolutely. Uh, we so appreciate him being here, and I do appreciate uh, your kind words at the beginning and to serve on the Biola board with you. And, yes. And sharing about your brother-in-law. Boy, that's powerful. Thank you for being so open and honest, because I'm telling you, from what I'm hearing from folks, you folks out there, and just to let you know, David, that there are so many within our congregational family who have that very same family member that they're trying to figure out, how do I relate to them? I don't want to judge, I want to be winsome, I want to be Jesus, and yet how do I know when I compromise my faith? If you could help us to understand, we're going to have your book for sale out there, Good Faith. In what way do you see that book impacting people as they read through it? Well, I mean, that's one story we tell in the book, and really our whole desire was, you know, we thought about our own kids and the, co- the, the, the complex way in which it is uh, that we have to live out our faith. So we actually wrote this book for our own children to try to understand how do you think about these really t- difficult topics. And I think there are about three chapters on the LGBT question just because that's the issue of the day. And there's no right solution other than, of course, to be grounded in Scripture, but to be salt and light in, in our context. It requires us to really think and to think about all the challenging, you know, like what are the human realities about, about this? Um, so this is really what, why we did the project was to try to, sh- you know, you don't have to like everything we wrote. You can blame us if you don't like it, like it, you know, that's fine. Uh, we actually designed it as a, a, a project that you could go through in a small group or you could go through with a friend because you can't have these difficult conversations, you know, in the mirror, you know, unless you're just doing, you know, like a, you're a narcissist and you want to do selfies, right? Uh, but you can't, you can't, you can't have these difficult conversations in that way. Part of the goal was to, okay, how do we 
talk through life, death, and disability, issues of abortion, issues of euthanasia, issues of disability? How do we as a church stand for people uh, who can't stand for themselves? Um, and then how do, we, how do we live this out? So that was some of the heart behind it. All right. Well, Stanley, we're so thankful to have you here. Let's thank him one more time for Thanks, his uh, good work. So yeah. thank you, David. I actually, have, I actually have read the book, and so uh, those topics that uh, many of us struggle with, and I, he's right, three chapters on the gay connection of having a meaningful relationship. You may work with someone, you may have a neighbor, you may have a family member. I'm telling you, it's a very insightful way for us to be able to be that salt and light to those that need Jesus Christ without coming across in a heavy-handed judgment away, but to be the Jesus that brings the living water of life. So I encourage you to check that out. We'll have you one more reminder as we conclude. If you're a guest today, we're certainly glad to have you here. And one of the ways we communicate here is this thing called the card. And we encourage you to take some time to fill that out, put any information on there, contact information, questions you may have, prayer requests. Uh, I tell you what, many prayer requests come through that card uh, for you to ask us to pray with you about a family member who is struggling in some of these areas. So we know it's a common problem for us, and uh, we want to prayerfully bring those before the Lord. So if you'd like to have that information on that card, put in the offering basket as it's passed here in just a moment. We'd love to be able to help and support you in that way. Let me pray for the offering as we receive it now and an opportunity to serve the Lord. Father God, we thank you for the work that you're doing in all of our lives. We know that these are hard times, and yet... Lord, as I compare our times to the days of Jesus and even before that, there was a lot of hostility way back then. And, uh, Lord, the church was pruned at times and disciplined, but it grew and it flourished. Father, help us to be that kind of a church as well, those kind of Christians that are so dedicated to Jesus, even in the hard times, that we still are the light and the salt of Christ, that others would come to know you. Father, thank you for this offering. Thank you for the gracious kindness of so many that support the work here, as well as people like Josiah and Heidi around the world. Father, we commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.